God, what do I even say about this one? Seriously, what do I even say about this one? It's like, okay, so here we go, the naked now. An homage to the naked time. It's not a clone, though. Everyone involved in this is very clear. This is not the same episode as the last one, and they're right. It's worse. This isn't quite lamentation material, as you can tell by the title that's up top there, but um, I'd be lying. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't tempted to give it that label, because... <sighs> See, here's the thing that ultimately pulled me back from the brink. I tried to think of this as just another episode of TNG. And I could get off on a whole discussion about the difference between serialization and uh, the opposite, which I can never remember the proper terms for it. Basically, you know, con con continuity episodes and any order episodes and all the gamut in between, right? I've, I've talked about this so many times before, so forgive me. And I know I said I was going to be more fair on season one, and I probably am. But I'm also going to be honest. And this episode is crap. <sighs> Even, see, the thing that prevented this from actually hitting Lamentation is a lot of my aggravation comes from the fact that it's effectively the first episode of the show. I mean, I know uh, Encounter at Farpoint isn't actually a pilot episode, so it doesn't, oh, excuse me, it doesn't quite qualify um, at, under the normal circumstances. So this is the second episode. But it's still the second episode. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting down to watch this new Star Trek. First time, you know, this, these are new characters. We're getting introduced to these guys for the first time, and we see this episode. This is the kind of episode, forgive me for being blunt. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Hang on a second. Let me toss something out there. I've never made a television show. I've done a lot of research on them. I've done a lot of study in it, and I've done, uh, you know, I've done my homework, so to speak. But I have never made a television show, and I know there are people out there in in the world. I've had this in real life, and I've had this on the internet, who say that I should have no right to speak ill of what someone else does, regardless of circumstances, if I have not been more successful at it than they have. So I can't critique games, and I can't review games, and I can't critique or talk about television or movies or books or anything, because I haven't done any of that, is basically where that comes from. Now, I obviously think that's a ridiculous and stupid perspective, and I have no problem saying that. But I want to say this, because while I sympathize with a lot of the crap that was going into Season 1 TNG, which I've talked about over the last two weeks now, so I'm not going to get into it again, I do have to look at this and wonder, why wasn't this repositioned? Because this is a bad episode. But it is merely a bad episode in a vacuum. The fact that it's the second episode is what would theoretically plunge this towards Lamentation category. Hey, here's Star Trek The Next Generation. I made a list. I made a list of all the characters. And I want to remind you for a moment that this is, you know basically our second look at these characters. I know I've said that before, but I really want to ha hammer that point in, because I don't know how many of you out there, and I'm sure at least some of you, watched this episode when it was new, just like I did with my mom. And so this was how we were getting used to the characters. And I jot a little note down about all the characters that have a little bit of characterization in this episode. 
let's look at our list. So data doesn't get humanity. Okay, I'm with that. Uh, we've already kind of established that. In fact, Riker literally called data Pinocchio back in Farpoint. So, okay, I'm with that. Okay. Wesley is immensely insufferable in the most smug manner possible. I know I don't really dislike Wesley, but there are exceptions, and this episode is probably the worst Wesley episode, in my opinion, and it's his second episode. He isn't just insufferable. I mean, the, the line he gives to, to Crusher, you know, he was probably stunting my emotional growth, when he's talking to drunk Jordy about, oh, there's nothing on that bridge I don't understand. There's just a sort of satisfied smugness to his tone, which makes me go, ow, damn. And then there's, he actually gets in into the engineering room and locks everyone out, which is so many levels of ridiculous that I actually think whoever designed that plot thread didn't think it through at all. So he has managed to prevent people from pulling down the force field, beaming in, destroying the force field with phasers, literally shooting their way through the damn window, cutting their way through the window. I mean, how many different ways could you get into there? No, 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 no. He just gets in there like, nope, nope, and he just he does the arm, you know, I can't even do it, you know. Yes, yes, I am super amazing. And then, and then, <laughs> when everything is dire, he's like, okay, <laughs> we need to go ahead and push the Tchaikovsky away, right? The Tchaikovsky, God, I can't even pronounce the ship right. The Tchaikovsky, I'm just going to say that. I know it's pronouncing it wrong, whatever. I'm going to push the ship away. And then, you couldn't do that. That would be impossible. Well, why not just do it in your head? Here, there we go, boom. Completely shows up the chief engineer on her job. Then we get to Tasha. Uh, there is absolutely no nice way to say Tasha's characterization, but there is a cool scene. There's like one interesting scene with her, but otherwise she just sluts her way around the ship. I'm sorry, it's true. It's ridiculous, but it's okay because all of the women do that in this episode, and by okay, of, of course I mean terrible, because for some reason... It, 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 Normally I talk about the behind-the-scenes stuff before I get into this kind of thing, but I want to pause for a moment. DC Fontana wrote the original script for this episode, and I stress the way I say that, the original script for this episode. I would love to sit down and read that. It's probably typical sci-fi. I mean, again, no offense to Fontana, but that's kind of her shtick. Uh, but I'm very curious what's going on with it. You know, I'd, I'd love to see the original episode. It received significant rewrites plural, in order to get into the episode we have. Fontana herself actually put one of her I'm ashamed of this pen names on the episode. And it's obvious why. She has actually publicly spoken against this episode. And she pointed out the thing which I'm just mentioning. All the women turn into, ah, sex, for some reason in this episode. Troy is, what's, what's Troy do? Riker, don't you want me in your mind? What does Tasha do? Nom, nom, nom. One cool scene, nom, nom, nom. You know, what does Beverly do? She goes straight to the bridge. Says, so, um, I was thinking, Captain, um, and it, it's literally, I mean, it, credit to McFadden. She does a decent job of portraying someone who is 
employing whatever will she has to literally not jump him right then and there. I could actually picture her trying to have sex with Picard on the spot without anything else going on. Just, yep. It's actually an amusing scene. The the, the two actually have two amusing scenes. That one, but later on when he goes down and he is drunk. Uh, Speaking of which, Picard has no capacity to command when... He he comes across as a weak leader, is actually how I want to say that. Someone who doesn't take command of a crisis. Someone who basically rants angrily when things don't go his way. And someone who ultimately doesn't do anything to save the ship so much as is terrible. But I'll, I'll get to that more later. Uh, Jordy, of course, Jordy actually has a lot of screen time, but very little actual characterization. He just comes across as, for lack of a better term, wailing. Like, the whole time, no, I don't mean, like, wailing on the moon. I mean, like, oh, you know, he's looking at these things like, oh, God, I wish I could see, you know, I wish I could be like you. Which isn't really anything there. Although he does, he has never seen a rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wonder if that was on purpose. Um, then we have... Uh, who else have we got? Riker is a weird one. Riker handles being drunk better than anyone else. Insert your own Risa joke here. They're all good, really. But uh, I do find it interesting that Riker basically just acts like he's having a bit of a headache when other people turn into legitimately retarded like like mental retardation, like what happened with the, the assistant engineer. Ah, ah, you know, Riker's just, oh, man. And Worf is fine. That's it. <laughs> That's all we get for Worf. I don't understand their humor either. That's basically all we get for him. Uh, yeah. I... Forgive me for going off topic for just a second. If you're putting a fictional work out there, this is my opinion, so if you're putting a fictional work out there, do something with it. (laughs) Forgive me for my ire. I've always talked about the five points of story, technically six points of story, right? Okay, we got plot, we got characterization, we got character development, we've got settings, we've got themes, and the hidden six point is fun. It's possible to have a fun story that doesn't really satisfy the other points, right? What does this episode do for any of these six points? Now, does it have a plot? Uh, By technical definitions, yes. But is that plot engaging? Is it mentally stimulating? Does it make you think? Does it make you feel? Does it... uh, Is it rewarding or satisfying? No, 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 no. Okay, next point. Characterization. Well, as I already mentioned, there's... Basically, only one scene, arguably two, but really just one scene about characterization in this, which I will talk about later. Uh, Character arc, or character development, none, moving on. (laughs) Setting. Now, I could pull a technically on this one, because this episode did something that meant something at one point in time and probably doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore. They flat out say... Last time this happened was on the Constitution-class Starship Enterprise under James T. Kirk. Definitively and unquestionably tying the TNG to, you know, mythos or arc or whatever story, canon, to the original series. Defining that storyline. Now, 
Anybody who knows Star Trek, especially from a now perspective, knows that Star Trek is not really self-consistent. The original series, even if you just look at it in a vacuum, contradicted itself several times. So does TNG, so does DS9, so does Voyager, and so does Enterprise. However, oh, and the movies, forgive me, and the movies. Uh, not the Kelvin movies, the original movies, the 1 through 10. However, all of these do exist within the same loose timeline. All of them are part of the same continuity, the same canon. Once upon a time, the idea of doing this was something that was considered significant because it had been bandied around the office, and I don't know how serious it ever was. This could just be rumor or people who are talking out of line. So I don't know how much intent was into this, but... I do know that Roddenberry was very adamantly feeling that this, they needed to tie TNG to TOS. It had to happen. He wanted it to be Star Trek, because in his mind, it was all Star Trek. And the animated series is kind of a gray area, so we won't go into that right now. But you get my point, right? So he, we, I'm pretty certain that he is specifically the one who put in that line about the Constitution class. First time that was ever said on camera, by the way. Uh, Constitution class... Enterprise, Star Trek, Kirk, reference to Naked Time, so that it would definitively, on camera, unquestionably, unavoidably, con c connect the two series together. I do find myself wondering, though... Well, I'll get into that in future episodes. So let's, talk, let's actually try to get into the episode proper, and I don't have that much to talk about, but I do want to talk about Ron Jones. This was his first episode, did you know that? Now, <laughs> anybody who's seen my Voyager stuff knows I've already talked about Ron Jones. For those of you who aren't aware of the man, uh, he did the vast majority of Star Trek The Next Generation's music from uh, Naked, Naked Now, this episode, all the way up to Best of Both Worlds. He, that's pretty much 100% of that is him. I think there's a couple of exceptions here or there, but otherwise it's Ron Jones. And it's noteworthy because he's a really good composer. He's a really good television composer, especially. He knows how to pull the right perspective into a scene musically. If it needs to be lighthearted, or if it needs to be silly, or if it needs to be dramatic, or if it needs to be tense, or a frightening, or whatever, he knows how to put that into his notes. He's really good at that. And I mention that because... I noticed immediately, as soon as the episode started, as soon as we got, like, what, maybe five minutes into the episode, I'm like, this is Ron Jones, isn't it? And I went to look it up, and sure enough, this is his first credit. I'm like, aha, there you go. That's how distinctive the man's music is. I could tell just like that as soon as I started hearing it. Now, granted, I have studied music a lot in my life and have actually composed music, so, oh, I can actually talk about music because um, I've made songs. Um, not just remixes, uh... But I mentioned that because there's several scenes where you can tell that the direction Jones was given was put tension into this scene. Make this seem like a serious threat. The ship is about to be destroyed, etc. And there's several scenes that have music that if you close your eyes and pull yourself out of the episode, it's like, oh my god, what's going on? And then you open your eyes and you look at the, the drunk people and it's like, oh, okay. It's just, never mind. I feel like they might have been able to pull off the quiet deadliness of this if it had a better, tighter script and better everything else, basically. I mean, I hate to say that, except for the music. The music was good. because, And the actors were good, too. Because um, I suppose I should explain what I'm talking about, because I don't talk about this all this often. So 
let's say you're walking along, and all of a sudden a Tyrannosaurus Rex stomps out of the foliage right, right over there. And you, 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 you quip a Jurassic Park line, because you have to, and then it starts charging after you and kills you. You know, that's a big, obvious, deadly threat, right? Now imagine that you're trapped on a tropical island with nothing else in visual range and, uh, you know, the end, right? Okay. That doesn't seem all that threatening, really. It's nice and quiet and peaceful. You know, you can hear the waves washing against the shore. But you are in as much, if not more, danger on that tropical island, especially if you don't know what you're doing. I imagine most people don't know how to drain the salt out of the water in order to get, you know, potable water, right? I imagine finding actual food that's going to be able to satisfy you is something that most people aren't capable of, and, and so forth and so on. Even if there's no animals or deadly you know, d diseases or whatever on that island, you're screwed. Most people also don't know that heat and heat stroke are a serious problem under those circumstances. My point being, it seems ordinary. Like, it, if you were to look at the scene, just to take a picture of it, it's like, oh, that's nice. As opposed to taking the picture of the T-Rex, which is, Wah! that's what I, that's the quiet, deadly horror. That's what that is. That's the, the feeling of, well, everything, you know, this isn't a threat, but it actually is. And I feel like that could have been an interesting perspective for this episode. You know, a bunch of people laughing and, and getting drunk and all that isn't the kind of thing you'd think would be a disastrous kind of horror thing. But it is, especially on a starship, as we see in the intro with the Tchaikovsky and, and everything that happened on the crew, the, the frickin' Oberth, right? I digress. So there's a nice scene towards the beginning where, where Picard actually says a line, Are you certain? To Data. Data starts to turn to him and Picard immediately says, No, of course you are. It's a small little touch, but I have to give this episode credit where credit is due because that made me grin. So... Should I bother bringing up the fact that they don't have hazmat suits? Or contamination suits? Or anything? That's not true. That's not fair. They do have the transporter. And it's okay, because they set the transporter to you know, maximum decontamination. So that should handle everything, right? Right? That's cool, right? We can just do that and it'll fix everything. Cool. Okay, we're cool. We're done. We're done. And then it doesn't work. <clears throat> Why doesn't it work? Serious question. Now, I know people could probably bend over backwards to explain this, but let's really go into this for a moment. Because the transporter's biomechanical filters are really top-notch, and we actually see this throughout the series, never mind the, you know, the accompanying tech man manuals and all that, which I totally haven't read. I'm totally not a geek. I'm a geek. Oh, God, I'm a geek. And I'm damn proud of it. So, but getting back to my point, if... <laughs> If they're that advanced, why didn't they detect anything wrong at all? Do note that the transporters have the ability to, for example, say, something's wrong, we're not sure what, but it's not normal. You know, their, their readings are different than they should be. Ergo, do you want to complete the transport? And then they can say, yeah, yeah, go ahead and let them on, and then we'll take them to decon or put a force field over the, the transport room or whatever we have to do. That's all doable. Okay? Um... <clears throat> Why doesn't the tricorder detect anything wrong with Jordy? That actually irritated me. Jordy is literally not thinking straight. He is drunk. Except the way they describe it is that it's a type of... You know what, I don't actually want to get into the science of it. Basically, it's not an infection. They make that point like five times. That'll be important later. It's not an infection. It's some compressed gravity water. 
which is affecting the brain. That'll also be important later. And so, as a consequence of this, they are effectively intoxicated. And, as a result, are also overheating as well. And yet, their scanners, their tricorders, which can scan the body inside and out, cannot tell that anything is abnormal at all. That is literally the most unbelievable thing I've seen in Star Trek in recent memory. <laughs> I, I'm starting to think that maybe th th that this is kind of a parallel to Star Trek Generations, that all the actual equipment that TNG itself, never mind Voyager and DS9 and, and, and Enterprise, but everything that's in TNG will later use hasn't shown up yet. They're still on their shakedown crews. So they don't have... That, that, she's raving the tricord over them, but it's actually literally... It's just a prop. I mean, I know it's just a prop in real life, but you get what I mean. Like, they literally don't have tricorders. They have plastic chunks of plastic that flash, like, a little flashlight and have no scanning equipment whatsoever. And she's like, I don't understand it. His readings are normal. And so are yours. And so is this plant. <laughs> you know? Uh, oh, also, data is in biomechanical texts. Why is data in biomechanical texts? Now, I know the answer. It's so they could set up the fact that he can get drunk later. Which is also really stupid, but I'll get to that later. Um, all I'm going to say is that the presentation of data's uh, construction, I think is the word I want to use, is really inconsistent throughout the entirety of TNG. It changes several times, up to and including the movies. Where in First Contact... Is probably the first time I looked at him and said, yeah, he's an android. As opposed to most of his earlier presentation where he's questionable. And the fact that he might actually be cybernetic, or in other words, to put this differently, biomechanical, as he himself says, is kind of one of those things that makes me go, okay. Whatever, whatever, let's move on. I want you all to do me a favor. If you haven't already seen this, I want you to go to YouTube. Different tab, preferably. Don't don't leave me no. Go to YouTube in a different tab and look. Just look up Riker destroys the Enterprise. It'll be like the top result. I guarantee it. I mentioned that because that was that it, clip is from this episode, and so I'm sitting here and I'm in full analysis mode. I'm like, all right, all right, taking my notes, taking my notes, and then I see Riker wander up to Data and sit on the console, and I just burst out laughing. Not only because I've seen that clip, but because my first, because I was like, "Oh my god, he really is just sitting on the console." Do those have like finger sensors or something? You could do that even with an iPod, and that does have like the heat sensor thing. So I mean, or iPad, excuse me, not iPod. I'm not old, I swear. Anyways, so uh... <laughs> so Jordy talks with Tosh. He has some good scenes with her, actually. Uh, it makes me feel like there was at least the implication of a romance that was going to happen between Tasha and Jordy. I don't know if they were ever going to go anywhere with that, but this, if in a vacuum, the scene he has with her on what looks like the uh, the observation deck or whatever, makes me think they were leaning in that direction. But I, I do have to ask something. Do, do these people legitimately not know what quarantine procedures are? At all? Let's recap. Let's let's. I I know I know. We all tend to take an episode and and you know just watch it and try to enjoy it. But I want you to turn on your brains for a second, just just for one second. I swear. And I want you to think about this. We are going to interact with another ship. That other ship 
is under strange circumstances, and the people that are talking to us from that ship are acting strangely. Also, when we get there, they're all dead because they actually blew out the emergency hatch and they all died horrible deaths. Oh, 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 it's okay. Not all of them died that way because some of them died because they literally turned off the environmental controls and died in the freezing of space slowly and horribly. Under these circumstances, we then see some of our own crew starting to act in an unusual manner. To be blunt, especially for an exploratory ship, that is all the information that is required. Never mind that we have other information that, that unfolds throughout the episode. That should be enough to be like, all right, it's locked down. And yet, and I hate to quote sci-fi debris on this one, but it feels like so many of the events of this episode happen because the crew of the Enterprise has no idea how to do, deal with drunk people. If I really felt generous, I would say that's on purpose. It's trying to showcase that people don't get drunk in the future, and we don't have these kind of you know, libations in, in, in our evolved sense of being perfect humans. And so naturally they would have no experience with dealing with something that nobody's had in forever, right? I mean, that's just logical. And there's a line at the end of the episode that makes me think that that was actually the intent, at least in part. Uh, I wrote down part of it. I think we'll have a fine crew if we avoid temptation. That line was so odd, I had to rewind it, just to make sure I wasn't hearing it wrong. It feels completely out of place, and if I didn't know better, I would say it was thrown in because there has to be a line to end the episode on. We can't just end the episode on silence, that would be awkward. So they had to say something, and they had no idea what to say, so, yep, good crew, let's go. If you remember, the original series actually did the final line bit a lot. And a lot of the times it turned out really awkward, especially when it turned into... <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? I mentioned this because is that, I mean, is that really the direction they wanted to go with this? To showcase that these people have no capacity to deal with people whose inhibitions have been pulled back and whose emotions are distended? That's that's going to be the foil to the Enterprise crew. And again, look at what all these people wail about. Again, not on the moon. When they get drunk. Jordy desperately wants to see. Tasha wants to have genuine intimacy. Troy wants to be with Riker. Riker has a headache. <laughs> Wesley wants to take control of the ship. And I like that one, by the way. It's not like he wants he, he wants to be... The guy that Picard gives all the orders to. So basically, the second captain. Um, Data... Data likes games, I guess? <laughs> Crusher wants to have sex with Picard. <laughs> just, just, let's go, let's go, you know. I mean... Is this trying to develop characters by showing how they're not? I mean, none of, these, none of these little things I'm talking about really go anywhere, with only a couple of exceptions. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm getting ranty. I'm getting off topic. But why do these people not have quarantine procedures? I, I, I wrote it down. 28 minutes and 47 seconds, not counting, not counting uh, commercial breaks, into this episode is the first time they're finally like, Oh, God, I need to quarantine. 
I need to quarantine Riker. And Riker's like, no, if you quarantine me, it doesn't matter because we're all going to be dead. And it's, oh, God. So Wes makes this little thing, this tractor beam, portable tractor beam, which is already kind of impressive, and the voice changer, which is already very impressive. But it's okay because they have better security than that, right? Right? And then... In addition to that, the engineer leaves Wes as the person manning the station in engineering before he got drunk. Think about that for a second. You know, I think there's a reason we cycled through three chief engineers and various other sub-engineers before we finally settled on Geordi, because they were all immensely incompetent. <sighs> So then, then, then we see probably, I'd say, the only truly good scene in the, well, that's not true, one of three good scenes in the episode. And it's between Tasha Yar and Data. And it actually bothers me a bit because she's in this obvious sex appeal outfit. And you know what I mean by that, right? It's not designed to be comfortable or even, like, intimate. It's designed to be, hey, check out the bot on this one, right? And, no, and I mean, no offense to Denise Crosby. She's plenty attractive. That's neither here nor there. The relevant point is, why is she wearing that, given what she says to Data? She dumps a decent amount of her own backstory on him. This is actually, again, her second bit of characterization ever, uh, counting the bit in Encounter at Farpoint, where she mentions she's from a world like this. You remember that? And here she talks about how she was dumped, abandoned, and when she was five. And it took until she was a teenager before she was finally rescued from that hellscape and ended up joining Starfleet. So we have a character who has an immensely tragic backstory, and a deeply personal reason to care about Starfleet and to have both loyalty to it and a genuine, zealous, almost, belief in its cause. So why is that not on the damn screen? But I digress. She also says something that I don't want to say out loud because I hate the word. She talks about the, she talks about the roaming rape gangs. It's the only time I'm going to say that. And... The very concept of that is so vomitous. The very idea that there's a planet, there's a, there's a culture somewhere, where there's entire gangs of people engaging in such a... Who, who, are, who have the moniker of such a thing. What kind of planet? Oh my god. We actually go there later in TNG. And it's not actually that bad. Which is good. But... I mention this because to someone like Tasha, hear me out, someone like Tasha, whose life has, who's, who's developing life when, until she joined Starfleet, was all centered around that kind of horribleness, to then want something softer, something more intimate, something more emotional, something that was, let's put it in real terms, something that was more real makes a lot of sense to me, and might have been the beginning of an interesting character arc for her. Obviously, spoiler alert, she has no character arc, but that's, a, that's actually a fantastic launching point for that kind of an idea, that she doesn't want someone because they're hot. She doesn't want some of them because they're good in bed. She wants someone to love her, to care about her, to be the exact opposite 
of what she saw when she was growing up on that damn planet, right? And she hints at this. She implies at this as she's talking to Data. And for just a moment, I'm like, okay. And I mean, if we're being 100% honest, Data's a interesting choice for to, to be the other side of that character arc. You know, this could be part of his continuing to develop as a human, well, I shouldn't say as a human, but as an android, to better himself, to grow as a sentient entity. And he's the kind of person who will never do that to her. Ever. He is safe. He may not have the kind of human warmth and emotion that other people could give, but he also has the absolute guarantee to never delve into the darkness she wants nothing a part of, right? So he's safe. And that makes so much sense to me. I don't even want these characters to get together, but still, you, you put it on the table, do something with it. I would love to hear from any of you if you completely disagree with me or think I'm completely on the, off the mark here. But I felt this would have been an excellent launching point to, to what is basically a two-step arc uh, for both characters. He learns more about her, and she, of course, learns more about... basically is, is able to, to come to grips with herself and to st start trying to actually move past this stuff and then you know move on to being in a relationship with someone who can actually care about her in return in a way that doesn't involve intellectualism but rather emotion right or you could put it in another way maybe she's okay with being someone who genuinely respects and cares about her without having emotional attachment oh you could have done something with it is all i'm saying but no anyways so then God. Why does Data get drunk? Why does Data get drunk? Ugh. Why does Data get drunk? Yes, I know. Biochemical nutrients. This isn't an infection. It's not alcohol. Alcohol is a poison which causes the brain to release... I forget what chemical it's called. Forgive me. I actually haven't taken this class in a while. And that is what causes most of the effects. Blah, 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 blah. Right, right? Okay, it's, it's a chemical reaction to a poisonous substance. They even go out of their way, and I mentioned this earlier, they go out of their way to mention the, the nature of how it works and how it affects the brain, and how it's not an infection, but Data, Data, gets drunk. I could, if I was being fair, accept that. I could if they did something with it. If you're going to introduce something that either bends or breaks the suspension of disbelief, do it for a purpose. Introduce, why does Data get drunk? What story purpose, on the six points of story, what story purpose does Data getting drunk serve? Answer me that. So, Data gets drunk. Riker's fine. It really amuses me how Riker is, you know, touches Deanna pretty early on, and then is like, "Yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I got a little bit of a headache, but I'm fine." And then Picard, you know, interacts with Beverly. Interacts with—that's what they call it these days. And um, and then within literally seconds, devolves into barely being able to function. Just, uh, I can't make it. Make it just. I half expected him to do a frickin' frat fall at any mo or frat fall, frat fall. Excuse me, frat fall at any moment there. 
so then Wes saves the ship. This is actually the first time, by the way. This is the first time Wesley Crusher saves the Enterprise practically by himself. He's the one who mentions that Data could do it to, to fix the thing. He's the one who pushes, who, who f- changes the, the tractor beam after laying out the new circuits in his head in seconds. He's the one who does all, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, so Wesley saves the ship. I, I get what they were doing with Wesley Crusher. And if you like that type of a thing, the Ubermensch that they were doing with Wesley Crusher, um, cool. I'm with that. You know, if, if that's your type of thing, if that, if you derive enjoyment from that, nothing wrong with that. And that's awesome in its own right. I don't, obviously. I, d- I don't like that concept. I uh, I can't say that Wesley is a Mary Sue because they actually develop his character later. But if this was the only episode you ever saw of Wesley Crusher, he is the definition of a Mary Sue in this episode. He is way too good at everything that he does, and he manages to accomplish what everyone else fails at, while people admittedly a bit begrudgingly, acknowledge how awesome he is. You, you want to know the definition of a Mary Sue by example? A Mary Sue is when a kid walks into the che- the engineering room of a galaxy-class cruiser, heavy cruiser, excuse me, and says, it's okay, I'll watch the engineering for you while you go and hit sickbay. And the engineer says, excuse me, assistant engineer says, okay, that's a Mary Sue. And then there's that weird line at the end. If we avoid temptation. That is such a Roddenberry concept. The whole idea that we have evolved to better ourselves, that we don't uh, succumb to our base desires, etc. Uh, Picard actually gives a whole speech about this in Q-less, and this comes up in the episode The Neutral Zone as well. And that's why I think that's where they were going with that, with regards to the not knowing how to deal with drunkenness thing. And I just realized, I, I'm just starting to rant at this point, so I'm going to go ahead and chop this off. I apologize. Next episode, I don't actually know what it is off the top of my head. I don't know the season one order all that well. But hopefully the next episode will be a bit better. And I'll see you next time, guys.